Good morning. Let us open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this rain that with the desert so thirsty, Lord. We thank you that your spirit will be with us. We thank you for the message to be learned today, for the that our hearts be open and that we learn from you and you continually teach us, Lord, and are patient with us because most of us take a little bit more than one telling for us to get, a, get the lesson through our head. So we ask you, Lord, that, that you be here and that uh, your words will sink in and help us to come closer to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our Lord. Good morning, everybody. You know, I really love how these devotionals that I'm reading out of this Billy Graham book are so relative to where we're at today. Because of prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. John Knox prayed, and the results caused Queen Mary to be so fearing of John Knox and his prayer life that she feared that most of all over the armies of Scotland. John Wesley prayed, and a revival came to England, sparing the nation of uh, horror of events in the French Revolution. Jonathan Edwards prayed, and the revival spread throughout the American colonies. History has been changed time after time because of prayer. I tell you, history could be changed again if people went to their knees in believing prayer. Even when times are bleak and the world scorns God, he still works through the prayers of his people. Pray today for revival in our nation and around the world. And the hope for today, prayer is powerful and often an unused tool in the life of the saint. Is there something in your life or my life that we've been trying to work out? Try praying instead. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. Save us. You came 
that song. You may be seated. You know, God gives us just um, a lamp unto our feet. He doesn't show us the whole, the whole thing, just, just enough. Our Old Testament scripture today comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. That means there's still time for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hear the voice of Jesus calling Who will go and work today Fields are ripe and harvest ready, who will bear the sheaves away? Oh, good Lord, the Master calls you, rich reward he offers free. Who will answer gladly saying, here am I, send me, send me. If you do not cross the ocean and the distant lands explore, you can give a loving witness, healing those whose hearts are sore. Your talents may be meager, offer up the things you can. All that you Join in with all faithful 
Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a rowboat or in a boat <laughs> repairing their nets he called them at once and they also followed him leaving their father zebedee in the boat with the hired men so if you take your bulletin <laughs> and we have a responsive reading holy god you gather the whole universe into your radiant presence. Continually reveal your Son as our Savior. Bring healing to all wounds. Make whole all that is broken. Speak truth to an illusion. And shed light in every darkness. That all creation will see your glory and know your Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know all belongs to you. We know that you have blessed us, that you have given us the opportunity to be the caretaker of some of, your, some of the things that belong to you. But you call us not to hoard them. You call us to give back, to give back freely and openly, to help others come to know you, Lord that they may know the, the joy and the wonderfulness that it is to be a part of your family. Lord, so we ask that the gifts that we give today be blessed and be used for that purpose. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Lord's good, isn't he? Isn't this great to have rain? I mean, wow. What an incredible thing to Yeah, you can actually see snow up on the mountains. So it's, uh, praise the Lord. It's about time. I was just uh, thinking of, you know, uh, <clears throat> we were talking about um, the song we sang. Kathy mentioned it, that it's her favorite song, Thy Word is a Lamp Unto My Feet. And I, you know, I, it, it's one of my favorites too. And the reason I love it is I, <clears throat> when we first got saved, Back in 1971, it'll be, oh, you know, this year it'll be 50 years. Um, 
I, God just put a, a, a yearning in my heart for the Word of God. And I remember Robert saying something about that uh, one time, too. God just put that desire in his heart for the Word, and, and it's just never left. And I, I love God's Word uh, because I am absolutely convinced that God's Word um, changes our lives, and it's a, it's a light unto our path. We can, we can see down the road with God's word and we can we can connect the dots between between what's happening now what we do now and what's going to happen down the road because uh, God reveals clearly if you do this and this will be the result so we come this morning on that basis that God um, as we share his word and as we hear his word and just continually hear his word and ingest his word that it, it corrects our hearts, it gives us, you know, it shines a light onto our path. It does all kinds of wonderful things in us. So that's what we're doing this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word that brings life, that corrects our hearts, that shines a light onto where we need to go, that gives us wisdom to navigate life with intelligence, with prudence, with understanding, so that life is not a mystery. Uh, you have laid it out before us and given us clear instructions in your word, Lord. But we need to obey those words as well as hear them. So help us this morning to be not, not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. And uh, give, us, give us ears to hear and wills to obey, we pray in Christ's name. Um, so this morning we're gonna we're we're still in Colossians a couple more weeks in Colossians, um, Colossians three twenty two through twenty five. Okay, we actually have it this morning. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. And then we're going to pick up verse 1 in chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Um, now I'm assuming um, that none of us here this morning uh, have slaves. <laughs> we, uh, but we are employers and we are employees. And so I want to I kind of expand this to talk about how we, and, and, and all of us are constantly in the process of working. And I believe that, that work is a gift from God. And I, these verses uh, help us to see how we can be better workers, how we can be better employers, how we can be better employees, and how we can live to the glory of God. So we'll cover, uh, we'll cover some of the theology of the work and cover some foundational principles in, scriptures, in Scripture of how both employees and employers can serve to the glory of God. That's what we're going to be talking about. So the first thing that we have to address is why didn't Paul advocate for the overthrow of slavery? All right, That's the first thing. When you begin to talk about slaves, you talk about these verses, People are going to say, well, yeah, yeah, Paul didn't even advocate the overthrow of slavery. So how, you know, why should we listen to him? Well, 
there's some reasons why Paul didn't advocate for the overthrow of slavery. Uh, first thing is that slavery was very different in the Roman Empire than, you know, than, than we had in the South, for example, um, among the blacks. And many times in society, in the, in the Roman Empire, slaves would be doctors or lawyers or, or um, you know, they, they're often, um, not often, but many of them were educated um, and would, uh, employed at highly skilled jobs and so on. Um, but on the other hand, slavery was well established in the Roman Empire. They say that about one in three were slaves in Italy, one in five in the entire Roman Empire. So, you know, he had a very well-established uh, tradition and, and institution, and that's very difficult to overthrow. Um, this, this slide, next slide. Um, this is a, just an example of a, a group uh, in the northern Aegean that we, uh, you know, we, we helped with for many years. And the point is this, that when I think of the Roman Empire and, you know, this is in what was part of the Roman Empire at that time, this particular group, it was in Gure. And there were so few believers that I couldn't imagine this group, you know, affecting any kind of social change. I mean, you, you just, you take the cards you're dealt with in a sense. And that's the way it was in the Roman Empire. The church was a very, very small institution, very, you know, very few number of people. And that's been the joy to us in pl church planning in the northern Aegean, is that it's very much the same kind of conditions. It's just a handful of people here and there. And, um, and so the, the church, you know, in Turkey, we see it today, has very little social kind of impact. It's beginning to get a little bit more, but, but, you know, very little because it's so small. And we have to take that into account when we think, well, why didn't Paul then say overthrow slavery? Well, you know, it just, it wasn't even a consideration at that time because of the size. Furthermore, Paul encouraged slaves to seek their freedom if possible. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And so Paul said, um, you know, if you, if you have a chance to be free, take it. And, you know, slavery wasn't, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to sugarcoat slavery. It was a difficult thing at that time as well. And a lot of the slaves, you know, I mean, they were giving up their lives to, uh, you, you know, you gave up your will. You, you, you served under somebody else, not just as, you know, as employees, you have your choice. You can either stay or go. They didn't have that kind of choice. Furthermore, Paul was concerned with setting, setting slaves free from sin, not necessarily, not necessarily from their station in life. So his primary concern was that slaves would, would be freed from... He understood that sin was a greater problem than even liberation from their masters. In 1 Corinthians 7.22... For he who was a slave, when he was called by the Lord, is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man, when he is called, is Christ's slave. And so he understood that it is sin which holds us in bondage. And that's the more important thing. And so a slave set free from sin is better than 
you know, a master who is not set slave, free, free from sin. <coughs> and number four, the early apostles were primarily concerned with the spread of the gospel, not with any social issues. Now, I'm not saying, in, in trying to say with that, that we shouldn't be involved in social issues. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'm just saying that um, the, the major thing that we have been called as believers is to, is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that's fine if that, and, and many times it does, lead to lots of social issues <coughs> and being involved in social issues. And I praise the Lord um, that, you know, much of the church, I, you know, you read, the more I read, the more I realize how much the church is involved in all kinds of social issues, uh, like abortion right now. You know, this is, uh, this is uh, the, uh, <coughs> you know, we're, 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 celebra- we're not celebrating, but we're remembering. It's the day today for remembering uh, Roe versus Wade and, and, the, uh, and the pro-life movement. And I praise God for those. But our primary task is the preaching of the gospel. Because that's what's going to change people's hearts. Matthew 28, Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I believe that that's the primary, you know, that, that, that's the thing we concentrate on. Furthermore, the Bible laid the foundation for the abolition of slavery. Um, and let me just give a couple of ways that I see that the Bible laid the foundation so that slavery eventually was outlawed um, in the growth of British Empire and the U.S. and really many places, most of the world. And the first thing is that the Bible advocates for the care for the poor and the oppressed. And the thing that I love about the Bible and I love about the Lord is that the, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, is, is concerned and has compassion for the little girl who was abused in Bangladesh. That, to me, is just is, is incredible. That, that little child who's, who's, has been abused, uh, that God, God has a heart for that. And you think, okay, here, here he is, he's a ruler, he created everything. Um, how could he be involved and be, and be compassionate towards some little girl? And he is. And that's the wonderful thing. Leviticus 19.10. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick your, up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And so, you know, through, all throughout the Old Testament then, God um, <coughs> instructs the nation of Israel to care for the poor. Uh, Psalm 82.3. I love this one. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So you've got four things that God instructs us, you know, instructs the children of Israel to do. Defend the cause, maintain the rights, rescue and deliver them. And, and we as, you know, as the body of Christ then, we take up this charge that we should be involved with the weak and the fatherless, the poor and oppressed, the weak and needy, and, 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 and delivering them from the hand of the wicked. That's part of our calling. 
Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But listen to this. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So every time that we are kind to those who are needy, we are actually honoring the God who made them. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever read uh, Newt Gingrich's book, The Tragedy of American Compassion. Any of you seen that? An incredible book. And he wrote about the, the early compassion ministry in the United States, uh, mostly up in New England at that time, and how it was part of the church. The compassion ministry and care for the poor was, was the, and it still is, the... Um, it's laid upon the church. And he talked about how much better the church does at compassion ministry than the government. Um, and, you know, and what happens is the government takes over you know, caring for the poor, and then it becomes just a kind of an institution. When it's in the church, there's a compassion, and, a, and you know, it's personal. Um, and it's a whole different ballgame. Second thing that... Um, that the Bible talks about is giving all men dignity and respect. And the Bible gives dignity and respect and honor to each and every person. Every person is important in God's eyes. Whether they're that child in Bangladesh or whoever they are, we are important to God. We are part of his, um, <clears throat> you know, when we are to be given dignity and respect. And that includes slaves as well. Um, and our country was founded on the principle of giving each person dignity and respect. And we thank the Lord for that. Uh, this is a picture of the next one. Next. Oops. You know what? That's an older. Okay. I sent the wrong one out. Okay. Um, there's a fellow that we, um, years ago, named Shroff. And he's, a, he's a Iranian, Persian, and we met him in Turkey, and, and I felt uh, at the time when I met him like God wanted us to help him to immigrate to the U.S., and so we did that. And, um, and he, he came to the U.S., it was about two years later, there's a whole story involved with it, but he came to the U.S. and, and was part of our church and so on, and then he couldn't stand the desert, so he moved to uh, he, 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 <laughs> he moved to Washington around the Washington D.C. area. And one day we were um, we got a call, and Shro was just shouting and, and rejoicing, and we're going, "What happened, Shro? You know, something happened. What happened to you?" And he said, "I become a U.S. citizen." And and he was still in the hall where he had taken the oath to become a U.S. citizen. And he was just rejoicing. And I'm convinced, and I've seen this so many times, you know, we've worked with a lot of refugees over the years, and how excited they are to be an American citizen. We don't realize the, the incredible gift that we have in America. Third is that, you know, when we talk about the Bible laying the foundation for the abolition of slavery, um, there's another book that, and I think I've, I've told you about this before, How Christianity Changed the World. Have I talked to you about that? Uh, it's a, done by a guy named Alvin Schmidt, who is a sociologist. And he goes through and shows how Christianity was the stimulus for so many of the social changes that we've seen. 
And much of it now, we, we say, you know, we look at it and it's, it's more uh, secularists who are promoting those things, and yet all of those started in the church, and slavery was one of those. Uh, William Wilberforce, does that name ring any bell? Okay, William Wilberforce was the, he was a parliamentarian in England, and he worked tirelessly for the abolition of slavery. He worked together with John Newton. Finally, in 1833, three days before he died, he learned that the Slavery Abolition Act had been passed by Parliament, outlawing slavery in the whole British Empire. Uh, and where did that come? It came out of the church. And then that, you know, that's 1833. It's not until, when was the Emancipation Proclamation? Was it, was it 65, 1865, 1866? Somewhere in there. Um, you know, of course, we fought a whole civil war over the abolition of slavery in the U.S. But the, the, all of this started in the church. And it is still the church which, which, um, <clears throat> which uh, picks up these social issues and, and, and uh, provides the impetus and the motivation for the dignity and respect of every man. You know, now there's a, you know, there's a huge thing of abortion and, and ending abortion and so on. And I, you know, personally, I believe as a church, we just keep at it. Uh, someday, someday we'll... We'll see uh, this destruction of human life overturned. I thank you. Thank the Lord for that. Well, okay. So let's go on and let's talk then about the admonitions to slaves. Um, Let me read the text again. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. So the first thing we notice about this is that slaves, and and for us, employees then, are to submit to their masters in everything, it says. Now, obviously, there, there are places and times when our employer asks us to do something that's illegal or moral or unbiblical, and we say no, um, because we're following Christ. But um, we are to submit to those who are put over us. 1 Timothy 6.1, all who are under, under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. And so um, I believe that, that we as Christians should be the best employees that there are. That, um, you know, that people will say, wow, I, I, I really want to hire a Christian. And I've seen this happen many times. First um, Peter 2.18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Second thing we notice is that slaves were to have integrity of heart. It was a heart issue as well as an action. And so it's not just, you know, yes, s- slaves and employees should obey their, their employers, but it's a heart issue. They should do it deep from the heart. Not when they're, you know, as it says, when their eye is up on you, 
And as soon as the boss walks away, you, you, turn on, you, you turn around and you go back to you know, your slothful ways. It's that there needs to be sincerity of heart. I remember uh, many years ago, and this was right after we got married, and I was working for a, it was down in, um, <coughs> the, it was a construction company based in Tubac, Arizona. And, and I worked for this construction company, and I could always tell when the boss was coming. He didn't come very often, you know, he just, every now and then he would come. I always knew when he was coming because everybody would start working. <laughs> and as soon as he left, everybody just, you know, you could, you could tell, he, he drove away and everybody stopped working. And we'd play and we'd do all, you know, um, you know uh, have water fights and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it wasn't much of an example of how we, ought to, how we ought to honor our employer. I don't know how he ever made any money for it, but I, you know. But twice in this text, the heart condition is addressed with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work at it with all your heart. So as employer, employees then, we ought to work for our employers with sincerity of heart um, and work at it with all our heart. Third thing is that slaves, it says, are not just serving people, they're actually serving Christ. And that's an, an incredible issue and important principle in work, a theology of work, is that work, our work, is actually a service to God. And when we, when we work, whatever kind of work we do, we are actually serving our master as Christians. We are serving Christ. And a lot of times, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's people will segregate their work, you know, the secular work and sacred work, and we do sacred work well, but we don't do secular work well, you know. Um, but in Scripture, there's no difference secular and sacred. Whatever we do, whatever work that God has placed us to do, we are to do it as if we are serving Christ. Uh, for since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Ephesians 6, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So, so we, you know, we do it as unto Christ. So it's our attitude about our work, not the nature of the work that pleases God. So whatever God has put you in, and what kind of, every kind of profession and how you're working and so on, and some of us are retired uh, and so on, but we are to, even in that which, you know, when we're retired, we still work at it as unto the Lord. God has given us things to do, and we do it as a gift to him. And the last thing is that slaves or employees get their inheritance from the Lord. Um, <clears throat> verse 24, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. So then, we need to see work then as an opportunity to develop Christian character. You know, we spend, you know, roughly a third of our lives working. 
third of our lives sleeping, third of our lives working. And that is an opportunity for God to develop. And there are, there are character qualities that are only developed in the workplace, like diligence and honesty and, you know, different things like that. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only place they can, they can show up, but God uses our work in order to work some of these things into our lives. Well, I want to talk about and use the example of Daniel. If there's anyone that had a wonderful uh, work, have, work, um, <coughs> work ethic, it was Daniel. And Daniel served under three kings from three different kingdoms. Okay? He served... Uh, do, you know, do you know the story of Daniel, most of you? Okay. Familiar with the, with the life of Daniel. Well, Daniel uh, was part of the exodus from Jerusalem, and they were carried away to Babylon, and they took the nobles, and they took those you know, who were at the top of society... They took them and moved them to Babylon, and Daniel was among those. And so he served under three kings from three different kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson or son, we're not sure, and then Darius or Cyrus, the Persian. And so Daniel's ministry then spanned 70 years from the time of leaving Jerusalem until, um, until the return of Jerusalem. In 586, um, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And as I said, all the nobles were taken to Babylon. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, were part of those who were taken as young men to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. They had to go through a strict training time, after which the king would choose the best to serve him. That was the deal. And that's the way the king did it um, in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And he, these, these four young men, decided that they didn't want to eat the king's food. They were going to have a strict diet of water and vegetables, a very strict diet, and... And they found that they actually did better on that diet than, than the other young men. <clears throat> Daniel 1.17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. He goes on to say, the king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, That's, these are the same three. They're just given a new name, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So, you know, this is an incredible story. So they, they made a decision that they were going to serve Christ in their work, serve, you know, serve the Lord. And because of that, and they sought to be skillful in their work, they were extremely skillful, ten times better than all the other magicians, all the other advisors. Well, to me, it's a, it, you know, in application to us as Christians, when we walk with Christ, we are able to maximize our intellectual abilities because we're learning truth, not have truth or blatant lies. 
And I think that we as Christians, we can be the most skillful of the workers. Because we're not all confused with, with all kinds of different theories and so on that come out of secularism. We can focus on truth. And we can seek truth from God and, and wisdom from God. So, so we can be um, the, you know, we can be the best workers. We can be skillful in our work. Well, Daniel goes on, he interprets a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which had deeply troubled Nebuchadnezzar. And so in Daniel chapter 2, it says, The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of its, all its wise men. And he also did the same thing for the other three. Well, it goes on in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here they are, they're, you know, they're in positions of influence, and Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90 feet high uh, statue of pure gold. Well, you know, incredibly, uh, I mean, imagine the gold that's involved in that. And And these four then decide we're not going to bow down to that statue. And the other administrators wanted to catch the three uh, favored administrators in a trap. So they reported to Nebuchadnezzar how the three would not bow down to the image of gold. And so that's the whole story when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no king, we are not going to bow down to your 90-foot high statue. And the, and the king you know, wants to see them continue in their work, but he says, I can't do it. Um, and, he, and he says this. Um, and they, they, so Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll give you one more chance. And then they, the three come back and they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So as we, um, as employees then, as we, as we serve in our workplace, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus and do what Jesus tells us to do. The three were willing to die rather than to deny their Lord. Well, it goes on. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel summoned, it, summoned to interpret it for him. And... I, I love this because of Daniel's boldness. Listen to this, Daniel chapter 4. Um, and the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go insane. And he's going to be insane for, for, for seven years. And then Daniel says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Now he's talking to the, the king of Babylon, king of the whole Babylonian empire. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. <laughs> the boldness of, of Daniel to tell the king of Babylon, you better get your act together. So it just shows his tremendous courage. Well, Nebuchadnezzar um, you know, passes on his kingdom to either his son or grandson. We're not sure who Belshazzar is. 
um, whether he was a son or grandson, but he's, a, he's an heir of Nebuchadnezzar. And he became king, and Daniel had been in retirement. And King Cyrus had, um, what had happened was, uh, Belshazzar had a, had, a, had a feast, and they decided to, um, the, the Persians had surrounded Babylon and were about to take it, and Belshazzar was so confident of his uh, ability to be able to re- resist this, this uh, Persian attack that he called a feast for 1,000 of his nobles. And, and so there, there they are, and not only that, but they also brought the gold chalices and all the things that had been taken from Jerusalem. They brought all those things, and they were drinking from those, feasting and partying and so on. And they didn't know that at that time, Cyrus, Cyrus's troops, they had diverted the Euphrates, and so it, it dried up the Euphrates, coming, which was right, you know, Babylon was right on the banks of the Euphrates. So they could wa- wade through the Euphrates, and they had already entered into the kingdom. <clears throat> and so the queen of Nebuchadnezzar came to Belshazzar, and she said, this guy Daniel can interpret your dream. Because um, what had happened was, yeah, there, the, there was writing on the wall, and there, there, a hand wrote on the wall, it said, many, many, tekel you farsen, you know, your kingdom has come to an end. And so God says, that's it, Belshazzar, your kingdom is finished. Well, Cyrus then invades the, um, and, and it becomes a Persian empire instead of a Babylonian empire. And then in chapter 4, there's chapter 6, and this one is the one, I love. Chapter 6, verse 4. At this, now this is, remember, this is in the uh, Persian Empire, not in the Babylonian Empire. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. So Daniel had been serving then, uh, you know, all through this time. But listen to this. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, would it be said of us as employees for our employers that no charge could be, could be levied against us, that we were absolutely trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent? Yeah, I, I mean, that, to me, that is incredible. They were trying to find some dirt on Daniel and just simply couldn't find any. So those are some examples then of how we ought to uh, govern our lives as employees. But let's shift and talk about masters or employers. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So the first thing that we need to realize is that it says because you know that you also have a master in heaven. We as employers or those who are over-employees, then, that we are to to take the attitude of servant leaders. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with their sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. 
She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Okay, we've talked about this before. Um, in other words, they're saying, uh, we want special treatment. And they, you know, the two boys had to go to mama. Mama came to Jesus and said, they want special treatment from you in the coming kingdom. So Jesus took that moment to teach them about the nature of leadership in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Okay, so he talks about the Gentiles or the secularists, you know, our, the general culture, that the, the way that they do it, the way they lead is by lording it over, exercising authority. So they want to be the ones on top. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So the first thing, that our first principle as employers, then, is that we are actually serving those under us. You're put in that position in order to be a, a servant leader. You're to get underneath them and lift those people up and help your employees or slaves, if you have slaves, <laughs> it, to help them to be better people. That's what God has asked you to do. Second thing is that masters, as well as employees, are stewards entrusted with God's work. Masters, provide your slaves with letters right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So as a master then, or an employer, you are put there for the benefit of others, not for your own benefit. You're there to serve them, to lift them up, to, to help them become better people. And then there are two principles that it talks about in this scripture. Masters, love your slaves with what is right and fair. So there's two principles here. That which is right and that which is fair. That which is right speaks to that that is ethical, that agrees with our conscience, that which agrees with Judeo-Christian ethics. Have humility and genuine care for those who are under you. Matthew 7, 12 says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. How many of you have seen um, um, Schindler's List? Uh, I, an incredible movie. Um, and the whole story revolves around this guy Schindler, who, um, in, he's, he's a, an industrialist in Hitler, you know, serving under Hitler's uh, regime. And he earns, the, fa he earns the, the favor of Hitler, but he also begins to get convicted um, about the Jews who are being exterminated and sent off to the gas chambers. And so he decides he's going to try to do something about it. So he starts a factory, and he employs these Jews who are going to be sent to the gas chambers. He employs them and has them work in his factory because then they were, they're essential workers. They're not going to be sent off to the gas chamber. And so I don't remember how many, but it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these who were, you know, not just them, but their families as well, who were saved from the gas chamber. And the last scene 
in, or not, you know, toward the end, not the absolute last scene. Let's go back to the other slide if we can. Um, that shows Schindler. Okay. Can we get there? Yeah. The last scene is this where um, the, the Allied troops come in and liberate uh, Hitler's Germany at that time. And Schindler begins to break down. He starts crying. Because he says, I could have done more. I could have done something more. You know, I could, he, he takes off his ring. I could have sold this ring and, and gotten money for it and saved a few more. And, and God just uh, breaks him with this knowledge that maybe he could have done something diff- more. And I think we should have that kind of attitude as employers that do all I can in order to bless those who are under me. In spite of what Schindler did, um, you know, he wished he had been able to do even more. So we're to do that which is right. But we're also supposed to do that which is fair. We're supposed to treat those fairly, not showing favoritism, treating everybody equal, equally. Not all have the same skills. Doesn't mean that everybody has the same level of responsibility. But we give everyone the same opportunity to advance and we reward them for what they've done. Now, how many of you have served in a, you know, in a company someplace and the, you know, somebody else, you did all you could to try to be a good employee and somebody else is promoted instead? You ever had that happen? I can't tell you how many times I've heard this same story. And it demoralizes the whole organization, doesn't it? Because you did what, what you were supposed to do and yet somebody else gets promoted. Well, I believe that this view of supervising others works. The goal is to maximize the effectiveness and the character of those who are under our authority. And I think if we begin to see our, our, our job as employers as maximizing them, helping them to be the very best that they can, Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for, up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus laid down his life. Here Jesus is the creator of the universe, and Jesus laid down his life for us. And I believe that that's, you know, that's an example and an illustration of how we ought to treat those who are working under us. A guy named Varro, who lived from 116 to 27 BC, so a long time ago, and he wrote, uh, it was during the time of Julius Caesar, and he said this about the treatment of slaves. He says, slaves become more eager to work when treated generously with respect to food or more clothing or time off or permission to graze some animal of their own on the farm or other kinds of things. This was in a thing on agriculture. The result is that when some rather difficult task is asked of them or some rather harsh punishment is meted out, their loyalty and goodwill toward their master is restored by the consolation of these former generosities. So what it's saying is this. If you're kind to people, they will work the best. They will, you know, and your organization will be benefited the most. Uh, This next slide, I hope it's the next slide. It's slow, okay. 
There it is. Okay. If you, do you recognize any of those people? <laughs> that uh, second one in from the right, uh, you might recognize that one. Um, I put that up because Caroline, um, uh, and I forget what year it was you started the Academy of Tucson. You probably don't remember either. Anyway, it was about 10 years ago. Huh? You recognize somebody else? That's my son on the right. Yeah, he came to service one time. And you maybe recognize the guy on the left. This was taken a while ago, okay? <laughs> this, this was about the time that she was starting the Academy of Tucson. Well, the reason I put that up there is that Caroline, um, taking these kinds of principles and, and working to maximize her teachers um, and do the very best. She, she started the Academy of Tucson Elementary School. And so she did all the curriculum, established all the systems and everything, uh, hired the teachers, trained the teachers. I mean, she, just, she did it all. Um, and, but her philosophy was to maximize those teachers, make them the very best people and best workers that she could and best teachers. The interesting thing is that after three years, okay, she just started, three years after this, this uh, Academy of Tucson is established, they were voted one of the five best schools in Arizona after three years. Um, but but I, the reason I, I, I want to lift that up before you is that if we really adopt these philosophies and really do the very best we can to try to maximize those under us, God will bless our work. And we'll see that they work as unto the Lord. So God has these principles. Employers, bless those that work under you and, and do your very best to, to bless them and maximize their work. Employees, work is unto the Lord. And work is unto Jesus. And as I say, I believe that we as Christians... We ought to be the best workers. We ought to be the best employers that we can possibly be. God bless you.
us pray. Heavenly Father, let us take these words to heart. Let us all serve you. Let us always be the best we can be for you, Lord. Let the best come out of us. Let us recognize the best versus the not best that we can give. And let us always strive to please you and to honor you, Lord. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.